so as you know, I'm going to be speaking uh, about Indigenous uh, spiritual traditions in Canada and how they might illuminate um, how we think about and how we understand the character of religious freedom. But I want to acknowledge that these issues are not just um, uh, conceptual or legal. They take place in locations. They take place in sites with material political histories that continue to have consequences for the ways that communities uh, live and uh, arrange themselves. And though I'm going to be talking about cases um, from British Columbia, one very briefly, one at some length uh, today, um, these issues are also grounded here uh, where we're meeting. Um, so we must, and I do acknowledge that discussions of uh, involving thinking about um, religion, spirituality, law, justice, um, have been taking place on this territory for, um, uh, for thousands of years uh, prior to the arrival of the um, European law that I'm going to be talking about. Um, and um, this area has been taken care of by um, the Anishinaabek Nation, by the Haudenosaunee um, Confederacy, the Huron-Wendat, the the Métis, and of course, is now um, a site where um, many indigenous peoples call, call this area home. Um, and of course, in, important to acknowledge the current treaty holders, the Mississauga of the Credit River. Um, and I think really important for the sorts of things I'm going to be talking about, important to recognize that this territory is the subject of the dish with one spoon um, wampum belt covenant which is an agreement to peaceably share and care for the Great Lakes region. I'm going to be talking about um, sovereignty and treaty, and we owe that history and that treaty and these peoples um, deep respect. And it's with that that I'm coming to these issues. Now, there are a number of ways we can speak about um, what's at work and what's at stake in religious freedom. And uh, I spend a good amount of time uh, in my courses at Osgood and in my writing talking about those ways that we grab language to try and capture what's at play in something like freedom of religion or religious freedom and what we see clearly when we <coughs> use some language and what gets trimmed, um, what we miss that's salient to the experience. And so for a long time in, in law and in public conversation, we spoke about um, toleration as being the heart of the matter. Um, and so we would think about religious freedom as some version of an expression of tolerance or toleration. Um, and then we wonder, maybe it's a right that's really about um, liberty. Maybe it's a right that's centrally about equality. And then as we think through those ways of thinking about religious freedom, we should and do, I think, quickly wonder, well, if that's the case, if it's about liberty and equality, then why are we speaking specifically about the uh, right of religious freedom at all? Why would we need a specific right of religious freedom if it's really about liberty rights and equality rights? And so we search for other concepts and we find um, a currently very popular one in the courts and around the world that this is really about some grasping at the demands of state neutrality. And then if we look south of the border, we see really quite idiosyncratic ways of talking about religion and law, things like establishment and separationism, which is, is really quite unique. My chief point today, what I really want to 
urge on, on you through this presentation is a line of sight into seeing something additional, something a little bit different at work in the right, a different heart of what's at work in religious freedom. And I want to use the nature and ultimately the failure of an indigenous rights claim made by the Tunapa Nation um, before the Supreme Court of Canada to illustrate this other dimension that I want to pull out from what's at play when we talk about religious freedom. Um, so of course we're kind of grounding this here in British Columbia. We're going to be talking about a couple of um, cases. I want to say something about another group before I turn to the Tunapa. This is one way, I gave this map when I was at um, a school in the States uh, because I was like, well, I need to anchor it and like tell them where British Columbia is. Uh, so that happened. Um, but also, of course, we could draw those political maps really differently, right? This is another way of drawing that North American map. Um, another one that I think uh, brings to the surface uh, the complications in thinking about questions like crown and sovereignty. And so we'll come back to that. Um, but I want to begin before looking at this rights claim made by the Tunaha Nation in British Columbia. Um, I want to begin by talking just very briefly about a different group and a different process, um, the Haida. Uh, they're an indigenous nation whose um, traditional lands lie in this archipelago off the coast of, um, kind of central, people say northern, but it's really quite central British Columbia. Um, referred to historically um, as Haida Gwaii, and then the Queen Charlotte Islands, and then again, now Haida Gwaii. Um, now, there was no, like in much of British Columbia, historical treaty over this land. Of course, with no historical treaty, to put it mildly, there were some outstanding issues between the government and the Haida nation that needed to be worked out. And many of those concrete issues, um, resources, governance, land, they were really nestled behind a key disagreement, a disagreement about sovereignty. And so when in 2009, the Haida and the British Columbia government came together to start framing a modern treaty, they began with a protocol, um, a negotiation protocol, um, that would do the framing for this treaty, which we now have. In and the protocol itself is fascinating and provocative in a, in a number of ways. So here's the protocol. Um, the parties in this pro protocol recognize that they hold different views with respect to sovereignty, title, ownership, and jurisdiction. And then you see these parallel structures, um, this protocol, as they enter into negotiation. Haida Gwaii, it says on one side, is Haida land, subject to the right, sovereignty, ownership, jurisdiction, and collective title of the Haida nation. And on the other side, we see Haida Gwaii's crown land, subject to certain private rights or interests, and subject to the sovereignty of Her Majesty the Queen and the legislative capacities of the uh, legislatures, both at the federal and provincial levels. This is a fascinating document, both in what it contains and in how it's structured. Um, the government and the Haida essentially agreed to disagree on the fundamental issue of sovereignty and authority over the territory. And this disagreement is emphasized not just by the words of the text, but by its layout. Um, it's quite a remarkable document. 
Um, their differences, they agree at the outset, are fundamentally about sovereignty. Everything else is built on that fundamental disagreement. That's what structured the relationship, but it can't be resolved in this, and so they get on to deal with what they think they can work through, and the result is one of the important modern treaties in Canada. And this was a process, of course, that took place outside of the courts. So I want you to just keep that, um, that uh, Haida example in mind, and we'll circle back to it a little bit later. I want to turn to the case that's at the heart of my talk, a, a 2016 decision of the Supreme Court of Canada um, called Tunaha Nation against British Columbia. Before I give you the facts of that case, uh, let me pause just to lay out three sections of the Canadian Constitution, um, all entrenched in 1982. Um, just to draw this out a bit, one of the things I've really valued about being uh, at the center here is its interdisciplinary character. Um, and uh, I want to make sure that we kind of have this common understanding as we move forward. So the first section I want to um, bring to your attention, either back to your attention or for those of you to whom it's new, is Section 35.1 of the Constitution, not part of the Charter, <coughs> part of the Constitution Act 1982. Um, you can see it recognizes existing Aboriginal and treaty rights of the Aboriginal peoples of Canada, recognizes and affirms them. Um, but this provision has been interpreted as protecting not only existing treaty rights and settled Aboriginal rights and title claims, but also potential rights embedded in as yet unproven Aboriginal rights claims. And so the provision has been recognized as imposing on government a, quote, duty to consult where unproven or unsettled uh, rights or title are involved. And this duty to consult flows from a more fundamental concept the courts have identified called the honor of the crown. But you should know that um, claims of indigenous groups under section 35 have been reasonably common, but success has been exceedingly rare. And that's important to the story I'm gonna be telling. The duty to consult essentially is a right to process, not a right to outcome. And full claims of Aboriginal rights or title over land are extremely difficult doctrinally, but also for economic reasons, for access reasons, time, and resources. And so in fact, there's only ever been one fully successful Aboriginal title claim in Canada. It's an extremely onerous test to prove title or rights under Section 35. Okay, this is more familiar. This one, is my head in the way? This is kind of gonna be more familiar to you whether you know the Canadian Constitution or not. This is one of our fundamental freedoms. Everyone has the right to the following fundamental freedoms. The first one listed is freedom of conscience and religion. But it's important that we recognize that all charter rights in Canada are also limited by a justification clause. Um, section one is one expression of this sense that rights um, are subject to government justification or government limitation of those rights as long as they are reasonable and proportional as limits on our rights. So I'll talk a bit more about that later, but let me turn to the Tunaha case. The Tunaha brought a claim to the courts resisting the construction of a massive ski resort in part of British Columbia called the Upper Jumbo Glacier Valley, uh, a territory known to the Tunaha as Catlin. Um, this, uh, this is where it, it lies, more or less, in the Kootenai 
region um, in British Columbia. If you go to the Tanaha Nations website and see how they represent the space, <laughs> it looks like this, right? This is Katmuk. Now, the ski resort was going to be huge, uh, like 50 square kilometers. Um, but also, crucially, it was going to involve permanent overnight accommodation, human accommodation. Now, two indigenous groups, the Tunaha and the Shushwap, had raised concerns about the impact <coughs> of the development project on land that they claimed rights over, and a long process of consultation. This duty to consult that I was talking about ensued. The Shushwap ultimately agreed to the proposal, but the Tunaha do not. And as time passed, it became clear that a key concern of the Tunaha seemed um, essentially non-negotiable. And it was this. They believed that Katmuk is home to grizzly bear spirit, a very important figure in their spiritual and religious beliefs and cosmology, and that to allow specifically permanent human habitation would be um, to cause the grizzly bear spirit to leave Katmuk. And if the grizzly bear spirit left Katmuk, this would have profound effects on their spiritual lives and practices. And in the words of the trial judge who summarized this effect, um, the trial judge said, quote, the Tunaha say they will no longer be able to receive physical or spiritual assistance and guidance from the spirit their rituals and songs about the grizzly bear spirit will lose all meaning and efficacy. Now before the courts, the Tunaha claimed that the government breached its duty to consult, but hope was reasonably thin on those grounds for reasons I've explained. Indeed, the court rejected the Section 35 duty to consult arguments unanimously. What's most interesting for our purposes, and what was more contentious and actually difficult for the courts, is that the Tunaha, really for the first time in this form since the charter came in in 1982, argued that the approval of this development offended their Section 2A right to freedom of religion. Now, this was actually much more promising as a litigation move. Why? Well, let me just slow down to explain to you a little bit about uh, freedom of religion in Canada and how we structure that right. So under our law of freedom of religion, um, a breach of the right in Canada is made out if the claimant has a subjectively sincere belief in a practice or belief that has a nexus with religion. That's the first stage. And secondly, if the state interferes with that belief or practice in a non-trivial way. This is, if you're sitting there thinking, whoa, that's an expansive view of the right, it is a capacious view of the right. It's a very permissive, open view of the right. It's just a subjective sincerity test and any non-trivial interference with those subjectively held religious beliefs. So on the law leading to the Tanaha case, it seemed very plausible to expect that the Section 2A breach would be readily shown by uh, the Tanaha nation. And then, when you think it through, right, the government would have to face the significant, and I think you'd agree, kind of unenviable burden of having to justify a limit on a fundamental freedom for the sake of a ski resort, right? And this was sort of the litigation approach. But the Tunaha lost, and the court was unanimous in this result, though not, as you will see, unanimous in its reasoning, and I'll deal with both. 
And the reasons that they lost are, I think, what are so revealing to me about what is going on in the case, but also in religious freedom more generally. But to make the point very briefly right now, what's of interest to me is what I'm calling this juridical motion in the case. The movement of indigenous rights concerns from a constitutional location, section 35, that is specifically crafted to address the distinctive features of those rights claims to a completely other juridical site, um, religious freedom, that less obviously is about land, territory, sovereignty. And I think in constitutional law generally, these moments of juridical motion, the movement of interests from one um, constitutional location to another are very important for reflection because it can sometimes allow us to see um, less visible uh, dynamics and less visible dimensions of what's at stake kind of appear in our field of vision, right? There's some motion and our attention is drawn to them. And I think that's what's happening with Tunaha. So as I've explained, there were really good litigation and lawyers' reasons for focusing on Section 2A. It seemed an easier, more accommodating task for the claimants. But that just actually begs a deeper question, one that I think should trouble um, and interest us. And the question is this. Under what conditions, under what historical, constitutional, religious, political um, conditions does freedom of religion appear a more legally accommodating avenue for asserting the rights and interests of indigenous persons and communities than the constitutional provisions putatively included in the Constitution for exactly that purpose? Right? Under what conditions does freedom of religion actually seem more potent, more promising? That's my question, and my argument is that the Tunaha case and how it was decided really resists an understanding of religious freedom so focused on toleration or neutrality or some story about secularism. It instead draws our attention to the abidingly central role of sovereignty in the architecture of the religious freedom right. So let me look a little at how the case was decided um, so that you can get a sense of the texture of that argument. So let's talk a bit about this decision. Again, the court unanimously dismissed the Tunaha's claim. They affirmed the reasonableness of the uh, minister's decision to approve the ski resort. But how did they contend with this claim that seemed actually so convincing on its face based on the state of Canadian law to that point, the, the law that I explained to you? Well, the majority of the court began by saying that with respect to the freedom of religion claim, the Tunaha, quote, stand in the same position as non-Aboriginal litigants. And that's an interesting claim that we can talk about a little bit. But they then say that the Tunaha's claim does not even fall within the scope of the right to freedom of religion. So this decision to say that it wasn't even within the scope of the right, their particular claim didn't fall within the right, is notable. As I explained to this point, the right was understood extremely broadly with essentially no internal limits to the right. If you subjectively, sincerely believed in a religious practice or belief, the state could not interfere in a more than a trivial way without breaching the right, without limiting the right. 
So essentially what I'm saying is to this point, the court preferred to say your right has been limited, but then to turn to the government to give an opportunity to defend that limitation. That was the court's clear preference under Section 2, um, freedom of religion. But here for the first time, and in an indigenous claim about freedom of religion, the court adds an internal limit to the scope of religious freedom. So what's this new limit? It's extremely interesting from a law and religion perspective. Chief Justice McLaughlin and Justice Rowe accept that the Tunaha are sincere in their religious claims. So check, check mark on box one, right? Subjectively sincere. But they then say that there is no state interference with the right because freedom of religion protects beliefs and the freedom to manifest those beliefs, but not, quote, the object of those beliefs, such as the grizzly bear spirit. So the flaw in the Tanaha's claim, according to the court, is that they were not seeking to protect beliefs or practice, practices. They were seeking to use the right to protect grizzly bear spirit itself. The charter, the court says, protects belief and worship, but not what the court calls the spiritual focal point of worship. The state is otherwise put under no duty to protect grizzly bear spirit itself. Now, this splitting of belief, practice, and object is really delicate ontological, metaphysical even, work. And it's actually evidence, I think, of the important point that whatever else uh, secularism might mean, it does not mean that the state is distant from religious questions. As people like um, Agrama suggest, state concern, state involvement in religious matters actually might define secularism, uh, which is ringing in my mind right now given um, events in Quebec and, uh, and uh, legislation that uh, that government has announced. But putting that aside, note that this new limit, and for our purposes, maybe even more importantly, this new limit is in particular ways uncomfortably specific to indigenous peoples and their religious traditions. To make the point succinctly, the object of beliefs and the spiritual focal point of worship of the religious traditions the court is more accustomed to dealing with in freedom of religion are simply not directly vulnerable to state interference. Right? So the Christian God is never the subject itself of interference in a Christian religious freedom claim. Instead, the metaphysical structure of other religions that appear in the jurisprudence is such that their object of belief is simply not susceptible to state interference in a way that's true of indigenous religion. Because what's wholly distinctive of indigenous spiritual traditions are their imminence and materiality in respect of territory over which the state now claims sovereignty. And that's true for no other religion in Canada. And so this makes this internal limit really quite a unique barrier in Section 2A for indigenous peoples specifically. Well, Justice Moldaver writes separate reasons, concurring in the result, but takes a different path. And in writing those reasons, he sees this problem and he identifies it. He notes that this um, 
uh, link to the physical world as a central feature of indigenous religion um, is crucial, and that for indigenous religions, state action that impacts on land can therefore sever the connection to the divine, rendering beliefs and practices void of their spiritual significance. And so he rightly objects, as you see on this slide, that the majority's approach, quote, risks foreclosing the protections of Section 2A of the Charter to indigenous peoples, and that their approach, quote, amounts to protecting empty gestures and hollow rituals rather than guarding against state conduct that interferes with profoundly personal beliefs, what he says is the true purpose of Section 2A's protection. And so he's sensitive to the particularity of indigenous religion in a way that the majority doesn't seem to be. And yet, despite that sensitivity, it turns out that his decision is even more awkward, I think. And it's awkward in its internal tensions because he finds that the decision to approve the resort would render the Tunaha's religious beliefs and practices, quote, devoid of any spiritual significance that it would render them, quote, empty gestures and hollow rituals. And so there's a deep, fundamental breach of the right. And yet he concludes it's reasonable in the circumstances. Deep internal tension. Well, why? Well, just as Moldaver explains in this paragraph that begins, like, that being said, right, everything I've just said, that being said, the minister was in a difficult, if not impossible, position. If the minister recognized the Tunaha's religious freedom right, this would significantly hamper, if not prevent him from fulfilling his statutory objective, quote, to administer crown land and to dispose of it in the public interest. He describes the implications of respecting the Tunaha Section 2A right as giving them a, quote, veto over development of the land and that it would, quote, effectively transfer the public's control of the use of over 50 square kilometers of the land to the Tunaha. And so he dismisses the claim. Now, these are awkward outcomes in both instances, I think, to say the least. And as the case developed, it became very clear, I think, that questions raised by it were playing out on a terrain of fundamental structural and political questions related to constitutional justice for indigenous peoples. Specifically, the Tunaha's claim placed the court between two really unpalatable um, alternatives. On the one hand, to simply apply the jurisprudence governing freedom of religion to that point would, would given the nature of indigenous religion and this link to land, it really would have had enormous implications for the state and would have been an end run around Section 35, right? Given the relationship of indigenous religion and spirituality to the land, it would have given a really uh, appealing access route that would avoid all of those burdens I described under Section 35, the specific right. But on the other hand, right, protecting against that, denying indigenous peoples the freedom of religion argument <coughs> when this objectively sincere claim can be made looked like the expulsion of indigenous peoples from the protections of the charter. Right? You don't get the same rights as others. And yet, of course, my claim is that that's actually, in the end, what happened in the case. But what's important for me 
here for this piece is not so much the result, although I think that's hugely important. What's important to me is that we see here the court squirming. And it's that discomfort, that squirming, that draws my attention and to what I uh, want to now turn. I want to follow that sense of uneasiness, that sense of awkwardness in the court, into thinking a little bit more about the lessons from that juridical motion, from 35 to 2a, and what it says about what else is at work in religious freedom claims. Not just here, but more generally. So, what does this juridical motion and the awkwardness that it produced tell us about freedom of religion? Well, first, as I mentioned earlier, I think it resists the claim that the modern liberal constitutional order is characterized by a decreased salience of religion. Religion is, in fact, an object of fascination, of anxiety for the modern secular state. Um, we're seeing that in Quebec. We see that uh, consistently around the world. And this, of course, is um, uh, Talal Assad's essential claim. It's Agrama's claim. And the packaging of interests in the case as matters of religion gave the Tunaha access to a kind of consensus that religious freedom is central to constitutional justice. Uh, it's a fundamental ground for debate about the limits of state justice. But note that that motion, that motion to this area of consensus, freedom of religion, also suggests that no similarly powerful consensus exists in respect of indigenous justice issues. The Tunaha's most politically powerful framing of their interests was in terms of religion, not in terms of specific Aboriginal rights. And I take this to be, in part, the story in the US, where according to people like Greg Johnson and others, the American constitutional obsession about issues of religious freedom has been conscripted by Aboriginal peoples um, to underwrite and advance the claims of Native Americans. So this, this motion is, in the first instance, I think, a marker of the potency of the political category of religion and the politics of religious freedom. And this was part of its appeal to the Tunaha, um, no doubt. But this movement between juridical categories also points to something deep and structural about freedom of religion, which is going to be my focus for the rest of the talk. And that's the element of sovereignty at work in religious freedom claims. This case shows how religious freedom turns out to be a highly hospitable home for concerns that are at core concerns about sovereignty. As it was in the Haida Protocol that I showed you earlier, the irreducible heart of Tunaha is a contested claim about sovereignty, right? that the land is Tunaha land, and that the crown lacks the jurisdiction to exercise authority over that land in a unilateral way. That's really what's at the heart of this freedom of religion claim. The case was a repackaging of underlying claims about sovereignty. Now, not every right could conserve those essential sovereignty issues as well as religion could. Something about the nature and structure of freedom of religion allowed it to conduct those sovereignty concerns. 
And indeed, I think that's what was making the court squirm in Tanaha. The fact that sovereignty claims, cloaked in other garments, could and did find sympathetic and forceful expression within a freedom of religion claim. We see this most clearly, I think, in the minority reasons. Remember, this is Justice Moldaver, who said that the minister's decision to approve the development was an egregious limit on the Section 2A uh, right. In fact, it wouldn't even just be a limit. It would be an utter evisceration of the right, as he said. Well, how then could it be reasonable? How then could you read the complete eradication of the right in respect of a group as reasonable? Well, his answer comes firmly in the register of state sovereignty. The effect of recognizing the right, he says, would be to transfer the public's control of the use of this sizable piece of land. It would prevent the minister from fulfilling his statutory objectives, Justice Moldaver says, to administer and dispose of crown land. Well, the key phrase here is crown land. Right? But is Katmuk crown land? It's as though the problem with the Tunaha's religious freedom claim is that compelling though he acknowledges it to be, compelling though he says it is, it's an aboriginal title claim in disguise, and it troubles him. So he responds in the language of jurisdiction and of sovereignty. And in fact, this is not an error. I'm not saying this is an error. I'm saying it's a tell. He's correct. This is indeed at once both a religious freedom claim and a sovereignty claim. The majority does the same kind of work, but does it differently. It does it with an internal limit on freedom of religion that surgically effaces the link between indigenous religion and the land. And indeed, viewed from that perspective, this sovereignty dynamic is set up in the early part of the case, right? In the third paragraph of the decision, where we turn and we kind of gloss over. It's a quick part where they say this is generally what the case is about. Um, and. Um, um, and they set up the facts. And so when the majority sets up the facts of the case, they explain that there is a dispute in this area that is located in a Canadian valley in the northwestern part of larger Tunaha territory. Well, that's the question, hidden in this religious freedom claim, really. Is it a Canadian valley, or is it larger Tunaha territory? And that's actually the dispute, as you see it working out in the courts. My argument is not just that um, Tunaha is a fascinating case. I think it is. I'm delighted to talk more about it in questions. But actually that it's an instructive case for thinking about the nature of religious freedom in a constitutional order more generally because it points to the fact that the character of religious freedom claims is that such claims are a kind of grammar for debating questions of jurisdiction, of community, of belief and conduct and of independence from the state in all of those dimensions. That's what religious freedom claims are doing. That's what they're about. This is the informing structure of all religious freedom claims. It's a way of describing also what's at stake in forms of political sovereignty or assertions of some form of political sovereignty. So otherwise put, the place of sovereignty at the heart of religious freedom is what made this translation of indigenous rights into religious freedom both available to the Tunaha and troubling to the court. 
And that's the core point that I'm trying to make. There are two very familiar framings of how we best understand the constitutional protection of religious freedom, the problematics and challenges that it engenders, and how to approach appropriate juridical and political responses to those issues. One of those familiar framings is that freedom of religion expresses a commitment to toleration of difference, specifically the different lifestyles and choices that flow from people's religious commitments. And that was indeed the historical understanding of the right in Canada, and arguably in the informing strands of Western uh, political thought. So that's one kind of familiar framing. Another familiar framing, which has gathered steam uh, in recent years around the world, is that religious freedom is best discussed and treated in terms of the nature and demands of state neutrality. And on this view, addressing claims of religious freedom is about properly defining the obligations of a religiously neutral state. I don't have time to discuss both of those in detail, but for current purposes, it's important to note that both tolerance and state neutrality are frameworks shaped by the assumption that the fundamental condition or problematic to which re religious freedom is responding is that of cultural pluralism. They're both set up to respond to a problem of cultural pluralism. The juridical motion in Tunaha, I think, directs our attention to another dimension of religious freedom that eludes both of those frameworks. The case suggests that there's more of a link between religious belief, action, ritual, and identity on the one hand, and fundamental questions about community, authority, and jurisdiction, the elemental stuff of sovereignty on the other. There's more of a link. This is the trail of breadcrumbs that the Tunaha case, I think, lays down. And the case is therefore interesting on its own terms, but also as evidence that we would benefit from thinking about religious freedom claims, also in terms of disputed sovereignties. The right might not only be open to, but maybe even centrally interested in those kinds of questions. Now, Tunaha is a distinctive case in its contours and distinctive in its capacity maybe to shed that light, but not, I'd suggest, unique in pointing in this direction. In Canada, we've been um, watching a slow opening up in the law to collective and institutional claims of religious freedom, with the court slowly accepting something like corporate claims to religious freedoms and parties increasingly arguing, not just for a kind of accommodation and toleration, but for a collective independence from state public norms. These claims are trading, I think, in a different intuition than tolerance and neutrality about what's at play in religious freedom. And we see this very clearly in the United States, um, echoes of that sort of a dynamic in cases like Hobby Lobby, uh, Masterpiece, Cake Shop, and maybe especially a case called Hosanna Tabor. And reflecting on these cases, commentators in the US have described a, quote, rise in collective and corporate religious liberty. Hosanna Tabor, as I say, might be the most forceful example where the US Supreme Court 
accepted something called a ministerial exception that exempted the church as church from federal anti-discrimination laws, saying that the church, quote, must be free to choose who will guide it on its way. It just wasn't amenable to the jurisdiction of federal law on these points. And watching that case and commenting on those cases, Winifred Sullivan has pointed out that the juridical use of this um, language, the church, points to really deep structural relationships between church and state, between religion and state, that I suggest are much more than about neutrality and toleration. They're about something quite different. In this institutionalist, collectivist term in the US and in Canada, as in the Tunapa case, religious freedom seems to be preserving a kind of claim of normative authority that stems from sources independent of the state, and yet the state must somehow respect, must nevertheless respect. In other words, it's serving as a kind of grammar about sovereignty claims. That they appear most clearly in these cases, I don't think means that they appear uniquely in these cases. Sovereignty ideas are somehow at work in individual religious freedom claims, I think, and certainly they're in play in all state responses to religious freedom claims. What I'm arguing is that claims and disputes about sovereignty are a fundamental dimension and problematic of religious freedom but one that we either don't see or that we see but choose to relieve ourselves of the need to contend with when we resort to analytic frames that are about neutrality or accommodation or maybe even of equality. Recognizing the central role for ideas about sovereignty, it may be that instead of thinking of religious freedom solely as a question of cultural pluralism, our attention should be drawn to ways in which religious freedom claims also engage challenges of political pluralism, giving greater attention to complex problematics surrounding the interplay of group and state authority that that kind of a shift would foreground. Well, so what, right? How would that change in any way how we would respond or ought to respond to religious freedom claims? Well, it could be harmful, actually. I think turning to kind of a more political pluralism, sovereignty frame could invite us into really binary thinking about sovereignty, focusing on whether a given religious group indeed has independent authority over X or Y at the necessary expense of the state. So it could become very kind of Manichaean, very binary. Um, and we tend not to do, I think, that well with approaches in constitutional law that favor cleanliness over messiness, right? I think they don't serve us all that well. But alternatively, maybe turning to this story and following someone like Abigail Eisenberg, we could embrace a more nuanced approach that she calls uh, relational pluralism. She's influenced by both the early political uh, pluralists that aren't uh, my area of expertise, and contemporary theories of feminist relational autonomy. And she urges a much more careful, historical, um, specific approach to critically evaluating the particular relationships between groups and the state. And I think you could add that it might be that seeing these dimensions of sovereignty and authority that are at play, we might end up turning to institutional settings 
and political practices other than courts for thinking about how to work through some of these disputes. And that's what I think the Haida example shows. Ultimately, in this paper, my purpose is not to defend any particular approach to wrestling with the sovereignty element um, that I've argued Tanaha suggests is more at the center of religious freedom than we normally recognize. My point is really to show that we miss too much of what is at stake politically in religious freedom claims when we speak about religious freedom chiefly in terms of tolerance, accommodation, or state neutrality. I'm missing too much. Religious freedom claims, Tanaha teaches us, are also and importantly claims about sovereignty, claims about authority, and recognizing that allows us, I think, to see a different face of what's at work in disputes about religious freedom. With that, I think it opens up a different set of legal possibilities, political responses that can be more sensitive to the interests and concerns of various <laughs> communities. Perhaps we just do better, I think, by approaching religious freedom fundamentally as a site for working out complex relations of authority um, rather than simply as tolerance or accommodation. So, courts and commentators have struggled to describe why precisely questions of religious freedom have proven so challenging to contemporary constitutional orders. Perhaps some have suggested it's the transcendent metaphysical uh, nature of the concerns engaged. And others have pointed simply to the scope of possible conflict between state action and religious belief, or to the apparently binary nature of some religious commitments, which seem at least to provide little room for negotiation. Or maybe some account can be found in religion's intrinsic resistance to the public-private divide on which liberal constitutionalism depends so, so heavily. These and other factors are no doubt a slice of why religious freedom proves so um, insistent in posing difficult questions for public law and why these questions seem to be gathering heat, not kind of finding resolution. And yet I think we deal with a vast range of questions of difference, of diversity, of rights that share some version of those features. They have a kind of ineffable metaphysical character. They're not easily dealt with by private public. There remains something about religious freedom that is of a distinctive character. It's of a character that despite tremendous political and historical difference between religion and indigeneity, it generates some really interesting resonance between the two. So following the juridical motion in Tunaha, I've tried to add another explanation. Perhaps it's the element of sovereignty that it engages that makes religion such a uh, disruptive constitutional category. So thanks very much. Looking forward to the conversation. <laughs>